experience teaching and preaching. So when I say something offensive, it's all Gabe's fault. So. <clears throat> so most of you who are familiar with the branch know that we do not have standalone messages like this very often. Rather, we put, pick a book of the Bible and we teach through it from beginning to end. Uh, this way, we don't miss out on any of what God has said to us, but rather we are not saying our own words, but his words, right? Letting the Bible interpret itself. So when they said that I could pick any text or topic that I wanted, I don't think they realized how unhelpful that was was. So I probably labored over what to teach, uh, what text to teach out of. I'm sure everybody was tired of the, well, what do you think about this? Should I do this? Um, and for the last three months. And it came to me one morning that uh, the Lord has been speaking to us through his word for centuries and that nothing I say can improve or uh, make it any better than it actually is, that I kind of settled down and stopped being dramatic and said, all right, let's just Pick something that he's already said and let's go with it. So this morning we're going to be in first. Uh, we're going to be in Colossians 1, 15 through 22, right? So Colossians 1, 15 through 22. So while you're flipping, I'll give you a little bit of background information and kind of why I picked this. So when I first picked this passage, I will admit I wasn't entirely sure what the word preeminent meant. I certainly didn't know how to spell it, and weeks later, still don't know how to spell it. Um, but when I actually sat down and looked up what this word meant, it kind of brought what Paul was saying into this new light, right? So to be preeminent means to be ranked first and of highest significance. So in the NIV version, they actually translate it as supremacy, right? So we read that Christ is supreme over these things. So this passage is all about the characteristics of something that Christ is preeminent over, something that he is highest of, ranked above and so uh, Paul states that Christ is preeminent of all things over everything. He even mentions it seven times in this short little passage. So we see very clearly that Christ is supreme, that he is supreme, supreme over literally everything. So Christ rules over his creation. He rules over his reconciliation of us. He is preeminent over all. Right? And this is both our hope that we have in this world, hope in, that we hold fast to, and it's the reason that we can be hopeful. So Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." And you who once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Amen. So let us pray. Father, I thank you for this morning, and thank you for letting us come together and gather and learn more about you and read what it is that you have said. I pray that you will be with us, that you will prepare our hearts for you, that we will be receptive and listening to what it is that you have said and what it is you were saying this morning. 
in all things. Amen. So a major theme of the book of Colossians is holding fast, keeping the faith, standing firmly in what it is that we believe in. So we find ourselves this morning kind of dropped in the middle of Paul's gospel presentation, right? So he starts off the book of Colossians by saying, I'm thankful for y'all, y'all are doing great, keep at it, before he jumps into this uh, stand fast, keep doing what you're doing, right? But before he does any of that, he takes this stop and he first tells them and reminds them of how great Jesus is. So in this letter where he's encouraging them to remain fast, he tells them first, remember Jesus, right? So instead of offering tips and tricks on holiness, uh, Paul instead says, hey, remember Jesus? Remember how marvelous he is? Focus on him. Right? And then he goes into this presentation and this argument of how Jesus is above us, how he is greater than us, and then talks about our sinful nature. Right? And the separation gets built between Christ our creator and ourselves, right? this gap that can never be breached uh, on our own nature. But thankfully, Paul doesn't stop there, but rather reminds the Colossians again the beauty of the gospel. Right? So starting off, the first thing that we read is Christ is preeminent over us. Right, so he is the image of the invisible God. Now, the first thing uh, that starts off with is this word image, right? So this word image is quite different than how we would think of it. So thankfully, we live in the 21st century. We have computers. So when we think of the word image, right, we get this computer image in our mind. We think of something more uh, untangible, something that we can't touch, but something that we can see. And this is certainly a different use of the word because they really didn't have computers in ancient Rome. Surprise, surprise. So what it's more talking of is like this physical representation of who God is, right? So if we think about it um, in terms of a statue, right? So a statue, if you made a statue of me, it would be the image of me. It would look like me, but it certainly wouldn't be me. Um, It wouldn't breathe. It doesn't act or think. Um, It's quite different than being an actual person. But if you were able to make another me, right, this is kind of the idea of image that we're seeing used here by Paul. So... If we go back to the story of creation, Genesis 1.26, I'm going to be jumping around a lot. Uh, we're going to have most of them on the screen, but I encourage you to go back and read these later. So Genesis 1.26, we read that man is made in the image of God after his likeness. Right? So we see that we are similar, that we are made after his likeness, but this expanse is very different. So back to that statue metaphor. We would be made like the statue after God's image. But it is actually Jesus who is made in the image of God. He has made this perfect representation of the same stuff, the full deity of God. He has all that God is, right? whereas we are just like that. We are similar. Now, this expanse is kind of what starts off this big preeminent section, right? So certainly uh, being made like God, uh, much more than we are made to be in his image after his likeness, this certainly draws this first difference between uh, Christ's preeminence and ourselves. So now the second part of this verse, uh, the firstborn of all creation, comes with a massive disclaimer. Now this is just so I can avoid heresy the first time in the pulpit. Right, so now when Paul says that Christ is the firstborn, he is not talking about Christ's literal birth, right? Because we know that Christ has existed 
forever. He is eternally begotten, without beginning, without end. Right? So this is not what he is talking about here, the creation of Christ. Instead, what we see is that he is talking about his rights as an inheritor, rights as the firstborn. Right? Because firstborns in ancient Rome, they would have enjoyed more privileges. They would have gotten stuff, possessions. Uh, if their father was a ruler, they would inherit whatever kingdom or rule that he had over. So this is kind of that idea of firstborn that we are seeing here, that Christ has this uh, firstborn right over all of creation. So why exactly does Christ have this right as an inheritor? So to see that, let's look forward to verses 16 and 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, right? So this attribute of creation that we see that Christ is preeminent over creation is the reason that he has this right as a firstborn, this right of inheritance, because he is the physical creator, right? We see that uh, he is the tool that God used to create everything. So he certainly has this right. So if we were to think about a builder, builder of a house, let's say, so if when you're the builder, you get certain rights and authorities over whatever it is you're building. You get to pick the furnishings, who lives there. Ultimately, you decide what the house looks like, right? This house comes under the subject of you, has the authority of its builder. Certainly not the other way around. So this is the authority that we see here that Christ has over uh, creation, right? He has this authority uh, over creation, has its builder, has its creator. So uh, flesh this out a little bit more. Uh, let's look at Psalm 102, 25 through 26. All right, so of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. So in this metaphor, we see that this distinction between creation and the creator drawn very um, plainly. So creation, the earth, the heavens, everything in this section is compared to Christ as like a robe, right? Like a pair of pants that we might wear. So obviously, uh, Christ is above the earth. He will be there long before, long after the earth has passed away, right? Like a garment, they will pass away. Now, this shows us the relation that we have to God's greatness, has this creation, has uh, this rightful place that we have, has his created, right? The greatness above creation is exactly why his creation is subject to him. All right, verse 18. So, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So this is where we see that word preeminent first used, right? And like I said, he's using it in a very broad sense. Everything he might be preeminent, right? So in this way that we can focus on things that Christ is preeminent over, everything, simply put. And again, we see this word firstborn, right? And going back to what I said earlier, that disclaimer, Christ was not created. He was not born in this sense of original, right? But this is more talking about his, um, his right over death, right? His resurrection, his firstborn over death, right? Because we know that while Christ was here on earth, he died a physical death. But this doesn't mean that he stayed dead. After three days, he rose again, and that we know, right? This shows his preeminence over death that he has, how even death is subjected to his right and rule of authority. So 
So far, we have seen that Christ is preeminent over man, he is preeminent over creation, and death being placed above all things, so that in everything he might be preeminent. So in these categories, we find Christ over it. But when we look at it, we find ourselves subject to all of these authorities, right? So we have um, authority of man. You're under some kind of authority, whether it be your boss, king, presidents, rulers, whatever it be. Laws of creation, right? Because we do not create, we are not subject to creating what we wanted to, but we are subject to the laws of creation. We are under the authority of creation, right? So if we look at the laws of gravity or aging, things like that. And then most of all, the subject of death, right? Because death is something that uh, is evident for all of creation. People die, plants die, everything passes on. But when we look at Christ and his preeminence and his authority, we see that he actually was above death, that he comes over this thing that kind of haunts and plagues us forever, right? And it's, this is where we see a lot of his preeminence come under in this idea of that he is over these things. This is why Christ has authority over all things, because he has shown that he is supreme and superior. So, with Christ's rule, we find ourselves subject to it, right? Because obviously we are part of his creation. So, flipping over to Philippians 2, 9 through 10, we see, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So we see that the rule of Jesus has rightly been established by God the Father, that at his name all bow and all confess their allegiance, right? Jesus Christ is Lord. But what does this authority mean exactly? What does it mean for us as part of his creation, right? So luckily we know his word and we know his scriptures and his commands, right? All of his things that he desires of us are here. Uh, we should strive to know them, read them, and most importantly, we should strive to obey them. Now, I know all of this sounds harsh, right? That we are subjected to Christ's authority, that we have no choice, that this is something that is forced upon us, almost kind of like a dictatorship, right? But when we look at what Christ has done, when we look at the reason and how he brought about this authority, we should look at it with joy. We should desire these things. So let's look at how he did this, verses 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So we see that the authority that we are subjected to, that we see that what we are under is not one of evil, right? So it is one of peace. By reconciling himself all things, we see that Christ has finally made peace. So no war, no strife. No even death, right? Because we see that he is preeminent. He is over death. So he has brought about this peace um, with his creation. But most importantly, he has given us this peace with God, right? So this idea of peace is something that's a little hard to put into the English language, right? In the Hebrew, we see the word shalom. You might have heard of it once or twice. But this is like this idea of absolute harmony, right? So perfect Um, sense of this is what his creation was meant to be. And when he brings us this peace, we are able to step into this creation that he has given us. We are able to step into these good things. But what exactly did this unrest come from? Where did this lack of harmony or this unpeace uh, come from? So looking at verses 21, 
and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So the unrest that Christ came to fix, what he came to rectify, the unrest of creation, disease, war, all of these things caused by us, our evil deeds, the the things that we do wrong, right? So the Bible is exceedingly clear on where the guilt lies of this wrecking of creation. So just to rattle off a couple real quick, Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. And then again, Psalm 53, 1 through 3, the fool says in his heart, there is no good. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Right, so the redundancy of these passages cannot be missed. Right, so the first one, uh, every intention of his heart was wicked, always. Second one, there is none who does good, not even one. So this idea that, that man is guilty of all that is wrong is something that we don't have to take much time to flesh out, right? We can look around and we see everything that's wrong. We can know that this is something that is made painfully clear to us, right? So this is where the separation between Jesus and man gets to its, its largest. This is where the chasm gets so wide that we can never help to, to breach it, right? Because if it was our fault, if we are the ones that are doing things, if this evilness is part of our innate nature, um, then there is not much that we can do about it, right? So to look at this a little farther, uh, Colossians 2.13 should just be the next page over. Flip there real quick. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Right? So we see that this is the result of our evil deeds, death. And certainly if we are dead, if we do not have life, then there is nothing that we can, we can fix about it. Right? So this lack of reconciliation eventually leads to our death. This is an even bigger reason of why we should desire to be subjected to Christ's rule right, and reign, because without it we have death. So, but how exactly does this fix this? How does the death of one suddenly uh, fix all of the issues that we have? So, verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So, he has now reconciled us to him. So, Through his death, Christ has reconciled us so that we may have peace. He makes peace through this idea of uh, dying for us. So Paul's whole point in this passage is what Christ has done. It is what Christ has done, who he has reconciled us to. This is what brings us this peace that we were missing. This is what gets rid of uh, the evil things, the unpeace. This is what brings about harmony. And it's not that just we are made good, but he brings us back into a right relationship with God, right? So it says that we are reconciled to him. We are holy and blameless before him. So this position that we are put in is uh, where we were wrecking creation, right? But suddenly Christ has died so that in order that we may now once again have a good creation. And this is the strangeness of Christianity. This is where things get strange to me, right? So we see this picture of Jesus, 
this supreme deity. He rules over everything. He has this good, perfect creation. And then Paul suddenly points to us as the enemy. He says that you were the reason that these things are evil, that there is this separation, this unpeace, right? So naturally, we would think that us as the enemy, we should be destroyed, but that is not the case. So Paul points us to the enemy, and then to rectify this, Jesus is destroyed. He is the one that dies. This, this is strange and doesn't certainly make sense to us. Um, but why does this make sense? Just so once again we can be with God, but why? Why would he do this? Why would he die for that which is evil, right? So let's look back, backtrack real quick, verses um, 19 and 20, right? For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. So why did God do this? Why did he reconcile us through the act of his son, right? Because he was pleased to do this. Verse 19 and 20 plainly puts that God was pleased to dwell with Christ. He was pleased to reconcile his people to God, and this is really the reason why we want, we should want and desire this, this subjection of Christ's authority, right? So if this first section of this uh, passage is all about why Christ has this authority, how he has it, how he is preeminent, the second section is all about why we should want that and why we should desire it, right? Because this peace, this authority that we've been given, a rule of peace, it was established not through our own doing, but Christ's death, right? So this desire, this good thing that we have been given uh, is, came ultimately through the death of he who is perfect. This is why we should desire Christ's authority over us. Most importantly, this is why we should cling to this hope, and this is what Paul challenges the Colossians on. So verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So this hope in the gospel that Jesus created, rules over all things, was crucified for our sins, and rose from the dead to show his power over death. This is the hope that Paul is telling them to remain in. This is what he says that we should cling to. This is where our hope is, right? But what does Paul mean by this challenge in verse 23? Certainly he's not saying that the Colossians could lose their faith. This is something we spent a lot of time in Hebrews talking about, right? The perseverance of the saints, once saved, always saved. Uh, if we think about it in the, the way this argument lays out, if Christ is preeminent over death and reconciliation, if he has the power of these things, and then he dies to reconcile us because it pleases him to do so, then it doesn't make much sense that this hope would suddenly be snatched away, right? But just so you think this isn't my words, let's read it in John 10, 27 through 30. John 10, 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. I and the Father are one. So clearly the intentions of Jesus for his people is once they are reconciled, right? My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and none is able to snatch them out of my hands. So once he has reconciled us, his intentions are to keep us. 
right? So nobody can snatch them from his hands because Christ is preeminent over all things and no one is able to snatch them out of our hands. This naturally makes sense that because of his authority that um, Paul is not talking about the sense of the Colossians losing their faith. So what he must be talking about, a few different things that come to mind, uh, talking about forgetting the gospel, right? The sense of losing their focus on what it is that initially brought them to the church. Or maybe he was talking to unbelievers in the church, right? Trying to show them the hope that they have, hope that they should have, right? So forgetting what Christ has done and the peace that he has brought them has ultimately caused whatever unrest was going on in Colossae, right? So we don't know exactly what it was, but what we do see is that to rectify this issue, Christ, uh, Paul has instead reminded them to stay focused on what it was that brought them this hope, right? He reminds them of this hope that they have. So this challenge uh, that Paul gives them in verse 23 is kind of called this call back to arms, right? This call to remember where they were, right? Not to shift from the focus that they had. And as we go into this, this new year, um, I want to challenge you with this, right? If our hope is that Jesus is indeed preeminent over creating, he is indeed preeminent over reconciling us back to him, then why would we ever want to shift? Why would we desire anything different than him, right? His rule is one of peace. His desires are for our good. Matthew 11.30 says that the burdens he places on us are easy and light. If all of these things ring true and we actually believe it, then his authority over us should be our desire, right? We should be joyful in what Christ has done for us. We should not easily be forgetting the things that he has given us, the things that he has brought. So as we go through this new year and as we we go into this time of communion, I just want us to challenge us to remember these things, remember our hope, and stay steadfast in the things that he has given us, right? So communion is this time that we have to remember our hope in the gospel, why we should remain steadfast, right? So 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven puts it this way, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So this is a time for believers to come together, to remember what it is that he has done for us, to remember our hope in the gospel, to refocus on ourselves the hope that we have. And we ask that if you're an unbeliever at this time, that skip communion, right? We will have elders in the back. We will have people back there to talk to if you want to talk about what you heard today. Somebody to pray over you. So as we go into this time and as we leave from here, I pray that we remember these things, right? So let us pray. Most blessed God and Father, we bless you. And we praise you, and we desire to love you in and through Jesus. Our souls benefit and enjoy this work that your son Jesus has done, that this reconciliation that you have brought us, that you have brought us back to you and your preeminent rule. 
Your glory is great in his salvation. Jesus, we cast all our sins on you, our sorrows, our trials, temptations. You are the almighty burden bearer of your people. For the the Lord, your Father, he has laid the iniquity of us all. And as you heed our sins, as you carry our sorrows, and as you bear every one of your redeemed, we pray that you will bear our troubles, our temptations, our trials, our difficulty, that as you have this authority of the world over creation on you, Father, that you will care for your church, that you will care for your people. So I pray that we cast all of our cares on you, that we remember the hope of the gospel that we have, the things that you will have made steadfast in us, Father. Lord, I pray that you give us your grace, that we remember you with all things, that you may support us when we are weak so that you may bring us home to your glory, to behold you and dwell with you forever. Amen.